This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. We're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 198 is Chris Stamey. He started recording at a young age and was in a band called Sneakers with his childhood friend Mitch Easter, who you might know as the producer of many of the R.E.M. albums. He moved up to New York. He started a record label just out of his apartment. He was a big fan of Big Star. He released the solo single I Am The Cosmos for Big Star's Chris Bell and actually backed Alex Chilton from Big Star in some gigs and unreleased solo work. You're right now hearing The Summer Sun, a 1977 Chris Stamey single that Alex Chilton produced and plays on. This activity morphed into Chris starting his own band, The DBs, which soon became a dual singer-songwriter thing with Peter Halsapple. They released two albums. Chris left that band in 1983, became a producer for several bands. He played in the Golden Palominos with folks like Michael Stipe and Jack Bruce. And he has now released nine solo albums in addition to The DBs reunion album, Three more albums with Peter Howell's Apple, several collections of avant-garde guitar stuff with a guy named Kirk Ross. We're going to be discussing I Will Try from his latest solo album, The Great Escape, 2023, the title track from his album Lovesick Blues from 2013, Glorious Delusion from his third solo album Fireworks, which was recorded in 1988, and we'll conclude with a full discussion of I Don't Think of You by Chris Stamey and the fellow travelers from A Brand New Shade of Blue, 2020. For more, please see chrisstamey.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, and I hope you'll support my efforts by going to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will play a little bit of The Summer Sun, your 1977 single to orient folks, but we're going to get very quickly to the the new stuff. Say a little about where you're at with this new album before we talk about the first song. I lead a songwriter's life, which means I kind of uh, take them as they come. And the albums come after the fact. I try to find songs to talk to each other and it makes sense. And, you know, then sometimes the albums are in interpreted as uh, completely coherent, grand gestures. And that's not the case, but there are a number of link songs on this one. The the record's called The Great Escape, and it really really started with some shows I did with Eric Haywood, who's a very interesting and very accomplished pedal steel player. So it started with kind of the flavor of Poco. I had seen The Birds with Clarence White, and those kind of things came into the picture. Yeah, I see, you know, there are a few here that are sort of lingering from previous projects, but for the most part, this is not a patch of individual songs that you recorded with different people over time that you were using. The coherence of at least sounds like a band for this whole album. Is that right? There are a bunch of us North Carolinians who play together all the time. And it's pretty much either Rob Ladd or Dan Davis on drums here. Jeff Crawford was very involved. Brett Harris, Peter Holzapple. And also, I made a bunch of records and friends with the guys in Chatham County Line, and they chimed in, which is great. They're always wonderful. And a younger player, Libby Rodenbaugh um, from Mipso, came and played beautifully on a number of things. So, yeah, it was a core group, but a kind of a larger core group. And I think it's the first record I've made where tuba played a big part. 
All right. The song I picked off of this to highlight here, we're going to play in full in a second, is I Will Try. You had in the press materials for this or somewhere I saw your description of the theme of this seemed worth mentioning in the annals of wedding songs or commitment songs. Do you want to just give them a few orienting words? I've never played weddings. I have had a wedding and I've been to them. I know it's a time for broad statements. I will forever love you. And I thought I'd write something a little more down to earth and and kind of say the path may not be smooth all the way, but no matter what happens, I will try to love you. I don't know. It, It seems a little more like we could use a more real world tune. And this is a very simple song and it's got a very simple message to it. I don't think I have to decode it for you too much, but it does have some of the flavor I remember from the birds, from that sweetheart of the rodeo period of the birds with the long harmony notes, uh, three-part harmony. Is that that helping? Yeah. Oh, I I also used the Les Paul on it. I usually use Fenders, but I kind of wanted to get a little more grit into the tune. Thank you. 
So you were very nice that you provide a songbook with this so that I've even got the chords in front of me, which, yes, I know this was a straight ahead one. I kind of liked being able to talk about that so that we focus more on the subtleties of how you build the song, how you arrange it out. Just quarterly, though, I mean, it's a lot of it's just a ba 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 ba. you know, just like let's walk down. It's a nice follow. But then in the uh, try to love you, instead of continuing with the I'm going to do an F, I'm going to basically do an F over an E and then, you know, a C over E, what you call you go actually a full on E minor. Any thoughts of let's make this a little harmonically richer, make it. We're going to, instead of, instead of just having it walk down, that it's having that little extra, I don't know, since you sent me the chord sheet, I thought I'd pick on at least one little thing. I call it a G6, I think, instead of an E minor, but the way the harmonies work there are, are slightly wrong. They're not really quite diatonic. They're parallel, or maybe they are diatonic, but they're parallel in a way that the birds would sometimes get it wrong. Like if you listen to the harmonies on eight miles high, they're pretty nutty, but they're voiced in a kind of a unique plain song kind of way. By the time you get to the actual verse where you're singing by yourself, like this is just as straight ahead as straight ahead could be. This could be a, you know, a Sesame Street song. But the fact that it takes a little while to get to that, that you've got your refrain, then you've got this try to love you, you know, the part that I was just picking out. That adds a little bit of melancholy or some kind of subtlety that it's not just a straight ahead, happy song. I guess also just the fact that this is a wedding song and yet this is not a processional tempo. This is a, a up tempo. Any thoughts of its social use? <laughs> Had you actually pictured this being played at a wedding or this is just, no, it's just the sentiment. It's a literary wedding song. There's a song and then there's the recording of the song. I think the song could be as processional, but I don't mean it would be for use down the aisles. I'm thinking more afterward, you know? Uh And, you know, I I think I should qualify this. I mean, I've read a lot of interviews from songwriters and I've done a few, but on a certain level, it's all crap because at least the way I experience writing songs, it's more of a fugue state and there isn't really as much careful manipulation as you'd think. It's more like you get swept away and it can happen very quickly. I think in emailing, I was talking about Betty, I think it's, Betty Edwards' book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, but I think that has a very good description of how it feels to write a song. And in my case, I do have a certain amount of craft. I've done a lot of them. I've tried to learn about a lot of different songwriters, but that's kind of all out the window during the process of writing. And then once it's done, you try to evaluate it. Maybe you see things that are you're oblivious to in the fugue state, but you don't really know how it happened. And then guys like you ask me, or you have conversations and you try to think of clever things to say. But a lot of this is actually, to be honest, after the fact. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and just the fact that you're willing to discuss after the fact rather than just, I don't know, man, it's all instinct. Just to <laughs> You know, I mean, I like thinking about it and trying to figure out what I'm doing and trying to get better at it. And I like trying to explain things to some degree, but I think there are a lot of songwriters who might hear this and agree that at the time you're writing a song, Betty would say you're in the right brain, Mm -hmm. somewhat of a timeless frame of mind. I mean, I write my songs generally in 20 minutes, or it seems like 20 minutes, maybe it's an hour and a half. I really never write them over the course of three weeks and revise and revise. I used to try to revise and they just get worse. 
Yeah, unless the thing that is sticking in your head, if I write a song that lasts two weeks, three weeks, it's because I have a thing, a stanza that I'm really excited about. And damn, if I can figure out exactly what to put in the rest of the song. Beginning writers, say I'm, if I'm producing a record or just you know working with them some way, is that you're always going to think that second verse is so easy and you've just got to feed the cat. And it's never going to be easy again. You got to sit down. And this is something I, I think I've read about Neil Young that he might be walking into the UN to talk about world peace or whatever Neil Young does in his spare time. Yet, if he's in the middle of writing a song, he stops and he finishes it. And I try to do that too, but I try to do that by writing early in the morning before anybody's really up. Yes, it was Sean Phillips that I talked to, a uh, you know, aged uh, folk singer that it was. It's like, I have people serve me meals in my room. I can't leave. It doesn't matter how long it takes once I start the song. <laughs> but then you have the arrangement and recording process, which gives you the chance to second guess everything or at least add little details. Like, I can't imagine adding this harmonized guitar. All I can say, do 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 do. Was that part of the original conception at all? Or that's a, I mean, especially having multiple guitars doing it and decorating it that way. That seems like a bit of on the spot studio festoonery. I don't know. About 15 years ago, I started writing a lot of string arrangements and wind arrangements and wasn't very into guitars for a while. And when I came back to making this record, I would still hear those kind of events, but I think I can just do it on guitar. I really don't have to call those guys. And I kept that flavor off of this. And so what you're talking about specifically might have been a string run 10 years ago, but I did it on guitar. There's a lot of that on this record, particularly the things that pedal steels can do in between the frets. You know, a lot of that satisfied my orchestral urging, urgings. Sure. I'm glad you noticed that little thing. I, I like it. it. Now it sounds very fancy. When I did it, I didn't think anything about it. Try to find the way. We're going to you know, this, and then everything stops. The fact, I mean, that's like a pretty climactic moment. And I'm surprised that you kind of pull that out. That actually happens multiple times during the song that we're going to have everything basically stop as opposed to like, okay, that's the thing before the final verse or what, you know, it's again, it's sort of right up front. So you got all this movement before you even get to verse one. It starts with what I think of as a chorus, but you know, that's really those few words or that's the point, you know, that's the testifying. The verses are just kind of decoration. I also like that at the end of the song, it doesn't do what you're talking about. It's done it enough. And if you notice that the last chorus is very, very short. Yeah. And, you know, for better or worse, it adds, instead of resolving in the key of C to a C, it resolves to a F9-6 or something. I don't really It's kind of unresolved, which is something my friends in Let's Active used to do all the time. I mean, it fits. I always like to think about how the message and the lyrics are fitting with the musical choices that you're making that while most of this is a very hopeful thing, which sort of off balances the fact that it's not as definite, that is not, I'm going to do this. We're together forever. You know, that we're just being modest about it. I'll try. But then you've got some things that to just express that, well, you know, we're, we're going to leave this last note dangling. We're not completely sure we're, it's good enough for a wedding, but you know, we want to be honest. If you actually put those in your vows, that would be a little awkward, but every day in a relationship is a new day and every day you recommit. So that may be, uh, but again, this is kind of all crap. I, I just wrote the song. I'm trying to figure it out just like you are. And I think maybe you're better at it than I am. I like this 
I think I had expressed this sentiment myself as a, as a younger person, just the exaggerated, what is this vow? How, you don't know. If a vow is a prediction, you don't know if you can do that. But if a vow is fancy philosophy word, a performative, then it's actually by saying I do, you're actually committing the act in the saying. It's not a prediction. So there's no sense of, you know, unless you don't intend to follow through, but the saying the words is not a claim with a truth value, right? It is an action itself. Like I dub the Sir Chris or something like that. Like unless it's only false, if I am not a king that does not have the power to dub you, it is not that, you know, it's a prediction about, it's an action. I, don't I know mean, that may be left field for the way I was thinking, <laughs> but I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. I, I think more all I'm, mean in the song is that a wedding is a beginning and it's at that point that you join together and work on it. I, I don't know. I've been very fortunate and that I've had a good marriage. You studied a lot of philosophy and was trying to determine how far up the ass of philosophy <laughs> you got whether. Well, there's a lot of philosophy to, out there to study. I, I think I was more like a Kierkegaard guy. I mean, I didn't really go completely modern. All right. Well, let's get the second track out there. The title track from Love Sick Blues 2013. We get some of your string arrangements and things here, but it is uh, offset. I will warn people this is a seven minute song because you get to have the sort of I am the cosmos kangaroo, except even more depressed if it's possible than those things stuffed in here. And then it goes, you know, it kind of has that whole song, but then it still goes on a journey where you get to introduce the strings. I remembered when you told me you want to talk about this one. It was in the back of my mind. Uh, there's a song called A Beautiful Song that Todd Rundgren wrote on maybe the second record by the Philly band Naz. And I love the way it developed. And it may be the first and only thing that Todd actually sang in the band. I'm not sure about that. But it's a beautiful track that goes a lot of places. So I was thinking about that when I wrote this. So nice. I find in your catalog as a whole, I guess this was an issue reading your book this morning, which I finished this morning. About why you didn't stay in the DBs as long as I want to have songs that are slow. I want to have songs that take their time. You know, I don't want to just be the power pop thing, but this is still like coming out of the Chilton Chris Bell that, you know, that whole thing. Can you say a little about, I mean, was this written in the depths of despair in 2013 as you're happily married? Not that you can't be depressed all the time. I know I am sometimes. No, I mean, I had a, a dear friend who's uh, died of cancer and it really brought him down. And in the end, he did take his own life. And I was trying to imagine how he felt. I remember that as the impetus. I was trying to put words in his mouth. They were quite a couple and she was gone and he had no place left to stand. But musically, I, I think it feels transformative to me in the way it develops. I find it comforting. I guess I wanted to imagine what was going on with him, but also to have the sound, a comforting sound in there. But yeah, it goes through a lot of different sections. It was pretty carefully written. It's about as straightforward as Brahms or somebody, but you know, there are a couple of funny bars that have missing beats and a couple of surprises in there.
That's a really interesting way of processing grief. It's not your personal relationship grief, but yet obviously you have this grief over your friend that you can then use to construct this thing as sort of a tribute and as sort of a, you know, a literary, I don't want to say exercise, but is that the, the secret to uh, writing depressing music as a person in a happy marriage who's generally doing well? Or is this a one-off? I'm going to misquote George Jones. I'm not sure what he said exactly, but he said something like, okay, we're going to play some fast songs and then we're going to play some good songs. If you're going to go interesting places harmonically, it's easier to do them at slower tempos, maybe. I, I don't know. I do like slower tempos. <laughs> I am finding playing some of the songs from this new record that it's energizing for everybody to have the faster songs. It's really a lot more fun live. But, you know, give me a 60 beats per minute any day and I'm a happy man. Did this song make it to the live set ever? Oh, I did some beautiful performances of uh, Lovesick Blues with um, Chamber Orchestra here. And there's an arrangement for, I think, just cello and violin and acoustic guitar that I've played quite a bit. There's some details in the song, but the basic parts, it can be realized easily. Yeah. In fact, I'm probably going to, I'm going to be playing it in Athens, Georgia uh, at the end of the month. Sure. Of course, I'm talking to the guy who's responsible for creating the museum quality presentation of Big Star's third as a, as a touring thing. So of course, you know how to in your shows, especially if you have a whole orchestra. But even, you know, I know a lot of folks that are able to do this kind of thing. You know, you can make something that is this sprawling and slow into sort of a, a really effective theater piece. I don't know. Is that... I mean, the thing about the recording you just played is that at the end of the day, when I was putting the whole record together, I thought it needed to be more visceral. And I really did push the drums and the guitars on it. You can you could almost dial out a bunch of those and hear this much more, I think, what, what's called chamber pop piece, you know. The violinist, Karen Galvin, can pretty much play the phone book at any tempo, or I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but she's completely amazing, and, and there's some really great performances on it that I kind of coded over with electric guitars. And, and yeah, if I'd been mixing it two weeks earlier or later, it might have been totally different. So as we finish up the first chorus here, It's these guitar chords that end up sort of giving you the nice instrumental theme, which I guess could have been bring the cello in right there, have it play the melody or something. But it was a nice, any thoughts about, okay, we're going to play you a little theme here. We've we finished the chorus and we're going to play you an instrumental ditty to calm things down, I guess. No, not really that moment. To me, that was just, you're on the five chord. Mm -hmm. um, I would be more focused on what follows that when it starts to uh, descend and then it ends up going into the... Uh, in darker instrumental things. Right. That's right before when the drum and bass enter and you get, you know, your your second verse where we've, now it's a rock song. Now we're not doing a little strummy folk thing. Right. Well, I mean, on a seven minute song, you've got room to build it, you know, and on, on vinyl, that's kind of dangerous territory unless you're doing multi-record sets. I think the song's longer now that you mentioned the length. I think I cut it down, but but there is a shorter version as well. There's a version where I kind of, I think I leave out the entire second verse. Let me play some of the 330 or so where you, the lovesick blues, lovesick blues. Love 
I mean, other than, you know, a little partial Peggio, ding, 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 ding. And we got some chug, 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 chug. This could have been full David Foster level production there at this point. You know, you've had so much song to build up to this point. When is too much? Uh, well, I mean, this is like the launching pad for the mm-hmm. instrumental things that are going to follow. Yeah, so it's really in, it's really in D major there. You feel like it's in C, you know. It's setting up a modulation to C by having this kind of fake C tonal center, mm-hmm. even though it's really in D. It's going to follow into a whole, it's going to go a whole step down into the development. Yeah, so I mean that's the moment where okay now that's where the orchestra takes the orchestra over yeah. stuff yeah right 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 with your ba and again that could kind of go and you even have like a day in the life strings not too far after that where this long swoop up that was improvised I guess but this is not anything I can talk about very clearly because I just heard it and wrote it down sure but I mean it's in the tradition of a development a romantic development just like you do in a concerto or in a movement of an symphony. When you describe the write it in one sitting, but then I was saying, oh, but then the arrangements come later. But of course, if you are thinking in classical terms, then it's not just, I'm going to sit and write it in one sitting. And it's mostly just the vocal and the guitar. And maybe I have a few lines that'll go la, 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 la. Like if you're actually thinking in your initial, you know, this was not written as a, as a two minute song that got arranged out. But that in its initial conception was your symphonic imagination. I'm sitting at the piano and I've got a pencil. And often I've got voice memo on my phone too. As soon as I get a little bit I like, I record that and then keep it in mind and move on. And knowing that I have a little bit of a document of that eight bar phrase and then I'll write down lines on paper and just trying to keep it moving. Sure. So it's not quite a all in one your Mozart with the paper such that the melodies take, I mean, I guess we're only talking about two and a half minutes for the end of this song, but it sounds like it was sort of like, okay, well, what's the next thing that's going to happen? Let me play around with that a little. Okay. That, that seems to work as opposed to you have a sweeping vision of this entire, how the song is going to end in one go. I used to play chess a lot. And a lot of times the opening will define where you're going to go for the first 10 or 15 moves. But then there's like a development section where maybe it's not quite as settled or unless you've read a lot more books on chess than I have. Or maybe it's like prying open a wall in an old house and you don't know what's beyond it. But, uh, you know, they're, they're very simple musical things in that song, Love Sick Blues, but they are still used in mutated ways in the later development. So the initial impulse, you just got to keep it going. You got to keep the chess game going and not walk away from it. But I don't remember the degree to which I wrote this song in one setting, but I think I did. This one would have been on guitar. Okay. You've got your guitar solo that you might seem like it's jammed, but then, wait, the strings are in unison with it for a substantial portion of it. So it's clearly written down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The strings had it. And then I thought, this is not fitting the album. And I went and doubled it on guitar. Yeah, you're right. Oh, okay. So it was the other way around. All right. So. And the way that ends, I will play the little bit. It's about 612.
For some reason, I was thinking that boy, yo, 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 yoing was that the strings were with you with that. But no, okay, that's guitar by itself doing the little tremolo there. But yes, the guitar solo starts and then the strings join it. But it must have been the strings from the start and you just muted the beginning of it. So it actually starts with guitar. That sounds believable. I mean, I remember at this time I was writing a string quartet version of a song by the band Television called Little Johnny Jewel, which has this little kind of muted guitar, very interesting timing things. And I think that must have played into some of what is in this arrangement. Last choice. We finished the big orchestral section, and now the initial guitar chords come back. At this point, why not an an extra little, like, one line of some revisitation of the vocals? I mean, did you just feel like, no, we're exhausted, the voice is already gone off to... I think I, I think I tried that, but it, it didn't feel right. Got me. I mean, I just thought it wasn't as good. <laughs> um, it's pretty, you know, with the string harmonic at the very end, that the last couple of seconds of this, you know, there's a famous Stravinsky quote, and I can't play the chord, but it's like he said in some interviewer, uh, yeah, when I found that chord, I was so happy and I took the day off. And the actual chord is just an E major chord. But what he meant was in that moment, in that voicing, it was a unique event. And Mm -hmm. I really liked the last couple of seconds of this song in the same way. And that probably is about the most pretentious thing anybody's ever said to you. I just... (laughs) I often pull out the very end of the song and, and I'm like, oh, you know, why, why that thing? Why have, as opposed to, uh, amen, you know, whatever your other, everybody slammed together. But, you know, for the, this one, that's a, a perfect way to end it. Just a, a little, a little sustained stretch there. Let's talk about HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Would you like farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep? Would you like to not have to go to the grocery store and instead count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable? Well, take a bite out of summer with HelloFresh. I have personally, on my own dime, used this service repeatedly. The recipes are always good. They're always simple, even for somebody like me that's not good at cooking, but they come out fancy. I see one of the recipes this week is creamy lemon spinach ricotta ravioli. Now, I make ravioli from the grocery store. And it does not seem fancy. It's just frozen or fridge section pre-made stuffed pasta that I put standard spaghetti sauce on. Well, no, this has the little lemon wedges. It has bell pepper and Parmesan. It is plated like something from a nice restaurant, 25% cheaper than takeout. So I get to feel like I'm actually contributing to my family's dining experiences and not just making a frozen pizza or throwing the pasta in the boiling water, whatever. Every week, there are 40 recipes to choose from. And you could just tell them your preferences. I put down vegetarian, and they'll pick out some good stuff for you. Or you can proactively, as I do, go on the website, make sure you like those meals, maybe switch it out, maybe skip a week, skip every week, heck. Plus, you can add snacks, sides. You can pick from a curated selection of over 100 items, including, for this summer, crowd-pleasing eats from a backyard bratwurst bar to tangy key lime pie. This all makes summer entertaining very easy. So you're saving time. You're reducing food waste. You're always able to find something new that you will like. You can choose the fast and fresh recipes that are ready in just 15 minutes or less. You can choose calorie smart options. Go to HelloFresh.com slash NEM50 and use the code NEM50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash NEM50. Use the code NEM50 for 50% off plus free shipping. 
HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show, a top shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. He's talking to professors, CEOs, authors, scientists, athletes, etc. There are upwards of 800 episodes getting into technology, politics, psychology, entrepreneurship, and more. I listened to number 695 with Malcolm Gladwell about deception and imperfect puzzles and other things. And number 830 with Terry Crews, the actor talking about empathy and growth and forgiveness. JordanHarbinger.com slash start groups episodes by topic. So if you want to do a deep dive on Putin or financial crimes or relationships or the mafia, all the stuff is grouped. Jordan is a very good interviewer. He gets his guests to share stories that you haven't heard. He pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode designed to make you a more informed, critical thinker. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get the third one out there. So Glorious Delusion is what I picked from Fireworks 1988, not released till 1991, but it was your second full-on solo album here post-DBs. Any comments of where you're at at this point and this song? It's a love song and, you know, you fall in love and it's nuts. And the fact that someone else is also feeling the same way, equally clearly deranged, is a thing of great joy to be celebrated. And I think that's what I mean by glorious delusion. It's not actually a delusion. But, you know, it's, uh, I think people are generally familiar with how that feels. And that kind of shared insanity is what I was, you know, I mean, the words on this, I probably wouldn't have tried to be as poetic if I was writing it. We're like caterwauling and cut loose these caterwauling days. Is that a, I would say, is that a literary quote from something or that's just the, the turn of phrase that at the time being in love seemed very simple and everything around me seemed caterwauling. So it was, a, you know, it was a little bit of a, it was being cloistered. Okay, I've already said Stravinsky. Another, I'll continue down this dark path. But it's it's well known with musicians that Bach would try to put his name as a motif in things. Because in German, uh, the H is a B flat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could, uh, you know, B, A, C, B flat or H. Um, and, and that's a musical tradition. So, you know, the Glorious Delusion, this song is based around G and D tonalities, but the delusion, it plays between D minor and D major. It finds ways to, and you don't need to know that to listen to it, but I did remember that. One of the reasons that I was attracted to this one in particular is because it has that jump to major that cracks through the veneer of my cynicism or whatever, whatever, that you get to start, oh, it's this intense minor key thing, and now the sun is going to peek through, but never fully. At least in terms of, you never drop the full drum set here. We have hints of it. We're going to go boom, boom. And then it's not going to actually happen. It's just going to be, we can make the bongos into the drum kit, but like, it's not going to be. It ends on the the four chord, a major seven four chord, instead of resolving in the normal kind of diatonic way to the five or the one. With me, a lot of times, the songwriting gets interesting around the hinges, points harmonically or lyrically where things can bend or can leap. Like you've got a C major scale, right? But if you push it at one point, you can, instead of going to the F, you can go to an F sharp. It's a straight up major scale. You know, everybody knows that. But if you, at a certain hinge point, say a hinge is between 
that half step jump. But if you push it, you can have a little shock to the system in the middle of a verse or when, when something is unexpected, but convincing. I, I guess in, you know, the glorious delusion, it's just the most basic thing, like on any kind of later album by traffic or something, it's going, uh, just, you know, back and forth D minor. And, and, but then it, it to an E minor there, which is pretty much a wrong chord. I mean, it's definitely, uh, a little bit disjunct. And I, I remember doing that as a way to make it twist. Am I making sense? Yes.
the one immediate thing, you know, the very beginning of the song, what is, it's the beginning of the most famous Midnight Oil song, basically, <laughs> that immediately, <laughs> the beds are burning. It came out like a, just about this, right before this, 1987. Huh, interesting. What I remembered when you told me you wanted to talk about the song, which I hadn't, and, and I haven't talked about this one or played it very much, but this was a not a songwriting thing, but like many of my contemporaries in New York at the time who were not making any money, uh, we were proofreading and copy editing for Random House. And I think it was working on a Norman Mailer book, that last spy book he did. But I remember looking at the manuscript and normally when you were proofreading something, you'd get a cleaned up manuscript, but they were rushing it or something. And I was able to see where the text would kind of wander and brilliantly surgically the editor could go in and cut two paragraphs entirely and move three lines to an earlier point. And it was fantastic. And that's what is, I guess, called out-of-the-box thinking is making bold gestures or bold decisions really opened up a lot for me. And I, I took that from the book editors, but I continually have used that over the years in producing other people you know, kind of that, what's wrong with this picture? Why am I not into this? Aha. So what I did with this song, after a pretty careful production with Anton Fear on drums, it didn't sound like the music to me. And I just cut the drums off entirely. And all of a sudden, the song was revealed and it felt great. And that's my Norman Mailer story. Well, this song also appeals to my my short attention span that I always like. If you can just, if you have a phrase that sounds like it's supposed to have four bars if you can just cut the last one off and just go to the next section and we get some of that in here that i'm a part of you glorious delusion home now it's over like no there's not that home there's not that space like just it's more than just that time in the song there's i think things even getting into the verse you do something similar where it does not give you the now we're going to do a big run up for a four count or a two count yeah that's the hinge theory again if you can take an expectation and defeat it, you can sometimes get a little lift or wake people up a little bit if they're tending to drift off. But it also plays, you know, I grew up on vinyl and on seven inches and every second is precious because you're physically clawing out lacquer material and 10 seconds longer on the record, you've lost a lot of volume. So we, you know, I grew up with very limited territory. Your stories in your book of dealing with all this real tape and doing cutting it with I had one electronic music course in quotes in 1990 or something at the University of Michigan, which is the only time I've been around like big old tape oh, yeah. players and encouraged to like take it off and slice it with a razor. And that's what you had to do for, you know, this technology that must have been from the 60s or what I, I don't know why I was being trained on this. At that point in time, where a year later I was doing stuff on a Mac. But it, yes, let's generate the sine wave and put it on a piece of tape. And then I would have to do it overnight, you know, because that was when they could let me. I mean, I would spend hours slicing up two inch tape. You could do window edits where you're not actually cutting the tape, but you're just cutting out a little bit of one track and all the techniques to measure that and the different angles you'd use for different instruments and. It's great when you're editing tape because it might sound really bad, but then you come back the next day and it, because it's magnetism, the two sides of the iron particles embedded have talked to each other. So the edit might sound a little better. They've kind of melded together and done a crossfade over time. With editing, you can keep the magic. You don't throw away the, the good take in exchange for the more perfect take. 
as far as you know, the recording of this. So this was in the cusp of this was on analog tape. Okay, on analog tape, but you'd gotten past, let's say, the worst of the eighties. <laughs> that that your your previous two solo albums, the drums are very loud. They're often very electronic. I know you you tell the story in your book about how from your very first in the DBA solo album that it's this drum thing that you built of a drum triggering synths with the, you know, some very early gating technology. I was trying to do Timmy Thomas. I really like that. Let's live together record, which was all on an Lowry organ. Maybe I love that sound for some reason. By this point we're getting, I don't know. There's something I was just in early college around this time, late eighties, early nineties. And I don't know the synths, they were starting to get more authentic or at least being consistently richer or something. I don't know. There's a lot of synth on this song, but it's very nice, nicely chosen. I don't know. What's your evolution in synth sounds? I think that is a lot of gu- guitars going through the uh, Eventide 3000. Uh, it was a type of harmonizer magic box that the studio I was working at, Water Music in Hoboken, New Jersey, was kind of affiliated with Eventide. And we had a bunch of these Eventide 3000s and you could play a guitar chord into it and it would garble it in a very pleasing way and spit it back at you. So there was digital stuff going on, but I think the sound sources were mostly guitars, actually. Okay, because there's sort of this pulsing, what sounds like synth strings, but you're saying that might actually have its source on... We have to admit to a DX7, we have to, you know, there there were keyboards around. Um, Maybe that's partly what I'm... that, That this is probably, right, around the time that DX7 came out, right? Around 87 or so. Whereas an 85 record, maybe I'm... I feel like maybe it was earlier than that. I hated those things, but I think I'm going to go for like 82 or 83. Oh, okay. All right. There's a a big star song called Kangaroo that the the songwriter gave it to the producer as an acoustic demo in mono and guy Jim Dickinson added incredible textures to it that were not what you'd expect. And I that song, we got it on a bootleg cassette in the 70s in North Carolina and passed it around and Kangaroo really influenced all of us, especially me, for years to come. So when I was doing something like Glorious Delusion, that would be right at the top of my toolbox. Sure. Let me play one little bit. 321, getting into the guitar solo here. Yeah, what about this choice that we're going to have a lightning fast acoustic guitar solo that's going to sit in this sea of sound that you'd created here let's specifically have a hyperactive acoustic in here it was a long time ago but it's an interesting choice i like well i mean i used to play like that a lot i i think i just you know sat down and wanted to play on the end but i don't know why i came out like that when you wanted to go through this one i i thought yeah that's kind of (laughs) interesting i mean i like it i'm glad i got some of that kind of playing, I, you know, I was doing acoustic shows at the Knitting Factory in New York all the time, and Bill Frizzell would be doing things, and it was a Elliot Sharp. Um, it was a guitar centric, and people were playing a little outside. I mean, that that solo was not really outside, but you know, the other thing that I was just crazy about Richard Thompson, and and still am, you know. So the playing is not like Richard Thompson, but the idea that you can play. F- in a fluid manner would have been appealing to me. All right, well, let's revisit the very end of the song, about 354 here. (laughs) 
So just we've got a lot of elements, but instead of like the last song where you're writing a score, we're just going to let them all flutter around and kind of drizzle out. It plays into that. And a lot of the verses end on the major seven, four chord. And this is actually a, a different tonality at that point because it's in D minor, but it's just playing off the way the word delusion ends earlier in the verses. I finished the song and I've always liked it, but I hadn't really heard it in a couple of decades. Well, I had something came over me, the one before that, which I know from reading your book now is a much more important song on you. On my list until the last minute. And it's just, you know, I think I like... <laughs> no, this is great. I, this is great. It niggles I, I a mean... little more at my subconscious than, than the uh, straightforwardly nice one. <laughs> That's right before this. All right. Well, to wrap up here, let's, if folks might have thought from your DB's stuff that... It, Oh, uh, Chris is a, a power pop, a strum, you know, you know, we had something in that realm of the first, but this has all been very dramatic and romantic and these very lush melodic lines, which has attracted you in some way, according to the appendix of your book, the afterword to maybe I should investigate not just doing things that are a little more ornate than one would expect in the melody, but go back to Tin Pan Alley days and actually master the more complicated chord structures. I mean, you're always putting in unexpected things. I mean, that's sort of the new wave way, right? The XTC way of putting it is let's try a slightly different chord or squeeze, which is basically just the Beatles, but with messier chords, you know, but they're still in that new wave box. No, we're going to, we're going to expand it all the way back to what you did on these past couple albums before this one of returning to your, the, the 20th century songs. This is all by introduction of our last song, which is I Don't Think of You from the brand new Shade of Blue album, 2020. So until this recent album, this was the kick you were on. And uh, maybe folks might have thought that you were going to stay there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And I'm still on it, really. I, I have another collection called Marvelous Melodies that I'll be recording as soon as I can get to it. And I, I'm very proud of it. You look at it uh, using a lot of different ways, and a lot of writers look at lyrics because those are what they understand better. But there are different ways to chop up what you're hearing. And one thing is, are the chords basically have having three notes in them, or do they have four notes in them, or do they have five notes in them? It's all kind of based on the harmonic series. But as you go up from the ramifications of just like one low note, there are all these tones in it. And if you manipulate higher harmonics, you get richer chords that are actually implied. I mean, the harmonic series is something like, uh, you know, when you play just one note, it has a certain number of higher partials in it way up. And that's what gives it its timbre. It's kind of like moving from two syllable words and one syllable words to four syllable and five syllable words. It gives you more of a vocabulary. And I've become really interested in that vocabulary, even though when you play loud on electric guitar, You've got those harmonics happening to begin with, and there's no point. Electric guitar loud is really not made for harmonic richness beyond maybe three notes at a time or four notes at a time. But I've got this piano here that I love, and so I can voice chords with a lot more notes. It's been great to play in that pool. And I'm guessing maybe I'm saying stuff that everybody knows, but I have really enjoyed learning more. I went back to college. I've been studying, and it's been a great time in my life. The the song, however, you're talking about, I Don't Think of You, it really comes from more like the Jim Webb or uh, Burt Bacharach uh, harmonic vocabulary. It's actually pretty timid in a way. I guess I wanted to get at this 
overall strain in your writing now. I mean, including not having yourself sing lead and sort of, I'm going to be a, a band leader, a director, I'm going to sit back. I mean, are there demos of all these? That Ideally, it's like, give me that, but then give me the second disc that's just all your demos with you singing them. Because there's something, if I'm a Chris Stamey fan, I want to hear that North Carolina accent singing those <laughs> those syllables. There's this process of making records where you, you write the song, you write it down, you demo it, you figure out the tempo, the best key, you record it, you mix it, you master it. And I realize I can skip all that stuff and write a lot more songs. What I do is I try to write it in a concise way. I can get it on two pages, maybe three, and I move on. I've got a hundred, well, not hundreds, but I've got tons of these songs I've written and I don't bother with the other stuff so far. There have been a few records, this uh, a brand new Shade of Blue and also one called New Songs for the 20th Century that are recorded examples. And that's a joy too. But I want to write a lot. And if I can just write it on paper in this particular fashion that was developed in the, for the Jazz Real Book series, I'm pretty, pretty happy. I mean, I can hear it in my head and it's on paper well enough that you can put it in front of good players and the music comes out. And I don't know if it's just embracing that idiom. There are a lot of songwriters that you can't picture other people doing their stuff because if they were other people were doing their stuff, they would be doing sort of an impersonation of that person because their style is so right. Robin Hitchcock is so idiosyncratically Robin Hitchcock that unless he was trying to write a song that somebody else is going to sing, then it's going to just sound like, you know, when other people are the lead in a Woody Allen movie and they're they sound like they're <laughs> and I don't know if I've written many songs at all that like other people would even want to sing that would feel natural around their mouths. But you're, you know, intentionally doing this thing that as if you're a Tin Pan Alley guy serving up these things and these young people with musical theater degrees are, how are you even finding this range of people? They, they all sound wonderful. Well, I mean, the same way I find string players, the good people know other good people. It's playing tag. the ceiling of some dark room. 
And I wonder if you don't think of me the way I don't think of you. The ceiling of some dark room, and I wonder if you don't think of me the way I don't think of you. I sit in the About the weather, will it rain tonight? Should I bring a coat? There's so much to do. I'm so busy too, much too busy too. You know, I was saying that songs happen somewhat in a fugue state, but the lead up to them is often setting the stage. And I'll think about a song for three or four days or a year before I actually write it, before I actually wake up in the lights in a particular way and I write the song. With this one, it was more specific. I, I was thinking about by the time I got to Phoenix, I'd not really been a huge Jimmy Webb fan, but 
I was getting into him and, and uh, I was thinking about the woman who's left behind and what her life would be like a few years later. I also think that, and, and Paul Westerberg is a master of this, but he's like, Westerberg's like a country songwriter in that you get a couplet you like, you know, like mm-hmm. a zinger and you can build a whole song around it. But the couplet in this one was, I wonder if you don't think of me the way I don't think of you, because she's actually pretending she's not thinking of him. But when you say, I wonder if you don't think of it, you're actually saying, I wonder if you do think. So that I had those little things in mind, but a lot of the song uses some of the boilerplate jazz techniques that also Jimmy Webb was using. So this song has a number of um, basic kind of jazz-related moves that I, I thought I'd show you. The intro, which becomes also part of the verse later, is just going around a circle of fifths. So it just kind of keeps, uh, although, there, yeah, um, these are actually going to the opposite way around a circle of fourths, but ended going around the circle by going to what's going to become the five chord, which you know, because it's a, a dominant chord, mm-hmm. but it's followed by a, what's called a tritone s- substitution going from a C seven to an F sharp seven and back to a C. And, it, and you know, it's a weird thing because the tritone is like a, the flat five, right? And so it's exactly in the middle of the scale. So it's about as the most dissonant point. It's the furthest away notes can be in a scale. You know, it's the Black Sabbath, you know, the devil's thing. However, a seventh chord on either degree is almost the same. So that's something that's in that song that I, I would not have used before kind of getting my feet wet. And then after that, it's going pretty straight up in the key of F. It's, it's like two, five, one, six, four, five. That's all right in the key. Fits on the guitar. But at that point, you're on the three chord, which is an A minor, and it pushes up to a dominant, a major three. Least expected, I miss your touch. Which is not that weird. And then, it, as you'd expect, it goes to the four, then back to the circle of fifths. It's back to the intro material. So that, that's all pretty straightforward. But what happens when the verse repeats is it's going to modulate, which is a straight up thing um lots of songs do it to go to a chorus so instead of going to this tritone thing it's going to the circle of fifths and you hear it's set up to go to a new key right mm-hmm. but it doesn't it actually goes to the minor right there Morning, i think of you then and i wonder And that sets up, the, it's a little bit of a harmonic surprise that sets up to her moving away from, the person in the song moving away from the daily life of parties and being at the office and everything into her mind of wondering where this guy who left her and went to Phoenix is now. I think this is making sense, right? Yes, and this is all very inspiring. I mean, what you were saying at the end of your book in terms of you don't have to just establish your style when you're a young person and then just get bored of that. You can just, you can actually keep developing and keep, you have the time, increase your music theory, right? That very few people that I've talked to on this podcast even can read music, let alone know what they're doing. And if they're using crazy chords, it's because, well, that's a thing I found with my fingers or on piano. It's even easier to find things with your fingers. And of course, you know, it's not too hard to like, now I'm going to add the seventh, ninth, you know, just walk up 
to uh, 13th and experiment with those. And everybody's got their, you know, if they're not a boring, has their tricks that they pull out. But to actually think of this in terms of the voice leading and like actually learn the people were trained in the olden days, you know, to crank these things out. And it was not just a matter of stumbling on something. I mean, here's the thing. The actual time of songwriting is when it coalesces or when you feel the inspiration. That is a very short period, generally half an hour, an hour, two hours, whatever. You have to have your tools laid out in the toolbox before you hit that point. You just can't. You're going to lose a song if you don't already know the different places you can go. And you you really run the danger of what I call a auto-hypnosis of when you're just in your, on the edge of the bed and you've got those four chords and you're going back and forth and you're humming on top of them and you just stay there and you're kind of in this hypnotic state and then you write down the words and it's yet another song with those same four chords that you've used and everyone else in the world has used. I mean, Wikipedia has an entry called Four Chords. And if you go there, you'll see like so many hit songs in the last 10 years. I mean, we're living in a harmonic wasteland. You know, we've increased the options of sound according to the point where the uh, actual harmonic content has reduced down to the size of a your little finger. You compensate for that, though. I remember talking with Steve Kilby from the church about this thing. He's like, you know, I could do at this point a whole album with just two chords because he's so into investigating textures and getting weird instruments in here and just like creating some new sonic space. But it's not about the chords. It's not about that traditional thing. But why not add that traditional thing from history, you know, and actually learn that craft? Picasso did this great stuff and he kept moving forward. But he also had uh, Les Saltenbanks. I mean, whatever he, he also, the drawing craft and that, informed his later stuff it i mean one of my favorite things i have i've ever released is a song called love that's pretty much one chord i guess sometimes it's two chords and everybody who's ever been in a band has had a lot of joy hanging just on an e minor for a couple of hours until the beer wears off but i just think you're going to get boxed in anyway for me it's much more fun to keep learning about uh new new places to go yeah, you've opened up doors for yourself. Another, I know you're you're a fellow Andy Partridge fan, and I recall him saying, uh, I've not actually gotten to talk to him, but it was a matter of exercising. Like, I need to exercise Thelonious Monk through some of these things on the last XTC album. Exorcise. And then, you know, eventually only Danny Kay will be left. You know, that it will have reduced down to the stuff that he got when he was five years old and can't shake out. And I feel like that's kind of been my arc of like, I explored some things and I did some things and now like I've kind of done that. And now my stuff has gotten dumber and in the same box. And I actually, in the last year, demoed a song that was like, the lyrics were literally something to, to the effect of, I sure love these two chords. I'm never going to play these two chords again in a song. <laughs> and I will not finish that song, <laughs> but... <laughs> But that has sort of been the lingering, you know, and of course, they're very big starry chords, you know, the the A minor seventh to the D seventh sort of the maximum yearning potential. But yes, there's more options that might not be the most yearning potential, but they're interesting. And this is a, a pretty sublime little tune, this I don't think of you. Yeah, I mean, this is the question, you know, okay, the unspoiled natural writer versus the sophisticated one. And, you know, 
I mean, I've not always been a Beatle fan. I've come to them more in the last couple of years, but you know, you see McCartney who actually had knowledge of the great American songbook and what was it? The taste of lemon. I mean, all these ballads that Mm -hmm. they were doing that he got from his dad. I, I really give, was it James McCartney? A lot of credit for increasing the harmonic structure of songs in the sixties that came through McCartney. Whereas John Lennon was more trying to blow it all up, you know, and he would come up with these asymmetrical rhythms and these chord progressions that were part of his in your face personality. And now that, that's fantastic. You could see McCartney moving through. Okay. This is an augmented chord. Wow. I'll use that. This is a uh, 13th chord. Wow. I'll use that fool on the hill. Whereas John Lennon was not naive or ignorant at all, but was more like, what happens if I do this three against four and I'll have to, you know, confuse everybody or glass onion or whatever. So both those I think are valid. The throwing away the rules and mastering the rules are both kind of part of the same thing. Yeah. Just different parts of the process. That's kind of what we've been talking about. You go into your fugue state. That's just the nature of creativity. You know, unless you are purely, I interviewed Jad Fair recently. I don't know if you know his stuff, but that he's put out hundreds of albums. And the way he does that is because it is really just, it's on the tape. It's done. I don't even know what song that was. If you ask me the next day, you know, that there's certainly, you don't have to have the fugue state and then process it later, but it's probably better. <laughs> I used to try to make tapes, you know, it's really exciting to hear your voice or, well, not always exciting, but, you know, now what I'm trying to do is make copyrights. I'm trying to make a, a song that has, that's a piece of paper. And then you, it's like writing a script, I guess, you know, I'm trying to write something where you don't need to know what the haircut is. That'll, that'll come back to haunt me, won't it? <laughs> so, something that's actual intellectual property. There's so, so much rock and roll is so generic that like, really? You think I ripped you off? No, I'm just doing the same generic thing you were doing. And there should be no legality should not even have the opportunity to enter in when it's, uh, when it's so much the common province of, uh, I was reading this book about. George Gershwin from someone who interviewed Ira, his lyricist and brother. And it was amazing to me that he was a prodigy and he was basically a piano player before he was really writing. Um, he was very gifted. He had a job plugging. He was a song plugger. He played really well so that he would sit over in the Brill building of the time that was at the Rimmick building, I think, and demo songs for people. He would try to sell the songs to singers. So somebody would write a song to hand him the sheet music and he would try to play it really well and convince people to record them. And that's where he came from. But in the book, not sure who said this, but it might have been Ira who said this, that with music, you can describe feelings and with words, you can convey thoughts, but it's only in a song where you can make people feel the thoughts. And I thought, well, that's kind of corny. And and then I've been thinking about it the last couple of days. And and I think that's valid. I, I think that that is a weighty responsibility. And when I think there's a distinction to be made between what we as songwriters write and then what we deliver. I, I know that Phil Spector, a guy who has certainly had a checkered past, used to say, I'm looking for people who make a contribution. And I try to think about that, about not just record everything you do, but think, what's the use of this? I mean, we all know what a, a hammer is useful if it can drive in a nail. But right now, Spotify is really pretty full up with a lot of hammers that, okay, I'm getting caught up in the metaphor here. <laughs> All of us as songwriters should try to write music that gives back or has something to contribute and not just put out everything we record. 
All right. Well, that's a wonderful sentiment to end on. Thanks so much for so much of your time. It was really, really a pleasure uh, diving into your mind and discovering three days ago your book, which I managed to get through. So I will uh, strongly recommend that to people. It is called A Spy in the House of Loud, New York Songs and Stories. Thanks so much. So great to connect. Thanks so much to Chris. This is definitely one from my bucket list. I was not expecting Chris to be so enthusiastic about analyzing the chords in his last song. Unfortunately, as we were recording, he was playing piano along with them, but it really didn't pick up. So I did my best to actually pick out the parts he was talking about and paste them in there, but I might have gotten some of them wrong. I think you should just buy the sheet music, as Chris is one of the few artists that I talk to that offers this. You can find out more and support Chris at chrisstamey.com. I hope you will also support this podcast by going to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. Follow the links to leave a nice rating and review at Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. You'll see links to social media to follow me. And you'll see the link there to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to provide direct financial support to make sure this podcast keeps happening. Since talking to Chris, I have now talked to a fellow named Alan Jenkins. He is very British. He's been making music for as long as Chris has under the name Deep Freeze Mice and then as the Chrysanthemums and Alan Jenkins and Thurston Lava Tube and other weird band names. So I hope you come back to hear that and the other cool things I have planned for this summer. Thank you so much for listening. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.